Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 26 of Renar Voice. My name is Robert Swatala. I'm one of the co-hosts of Renar Voice, and with me, my partner and friend, Jeff Mazzone. How are you, Jeff? Good morning, Robert. What's going on, bro? Not much. It's been a little bit. We haven't done an episode for um, about a month, so... We had a little bit of a break. Yeah, yeah, that's good, right? I mean, it's good to take some... some, (laughs) Uh, I had somebody ask me, uh, actually yesterday, when the next uh, episode, they thought we were like, uh, you know, a series where they got to wait for the next season to to arrive, but I said... uh, Stay tuned. It's coming. Be patient. So, you know, we don't want to reinforce or condone binge watching. You know, there's a lot of lack of health to that. So, we, you know, that's that's right. That's right. Self-care practices here at Renar Voice. Hey, hey, we we practice what we preach, right? (laughs) On a good day. (laughs) (laughs) So we are we are right into the fall season. It's hard to believe. I know you're counting down the days. You don't have much time left until you graduate. So congratulations on that. I got a little bit longer, but I know you're probably counting down the days more than I am. So, yeah, um, it's getting there, my friend. It's getting there. Yep. And this is also the, we're coming up on the one year anniversary of the podcast. Um, yeah. So first episode was November 10th and that's 3,500 downloads. I don't know how many of those 3,500 downloads were folks actually listening to the entire episode. They might've cut it out after a minute. The statistics don't tell you that. <laughs> right. But, hey, right, we'll right. take the 3,500. That's you know? right. That's <laughs> right. And I'm sure I, I counted for at least 10% of that. Oh so. yeah. 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 We, we, we have we to gotta, factor yeah, we have out you and I factor. re-listening yeah. to episode. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, hey, um, you know, we've always tried to be, I think, a little bit of innovative here, um, maybe use that term loosely, but we have something different today that we've never done. And this right. is our 26th episode. We're doing this for about a year. Today, we have a dual guest podcast. This and, is it. We're going for it. Yeah. Yeah. So doing something different. You know what? And, and this is going to be a great conversation today. And I'm really excited. We have two great guests with us today. So, Jeff, I know people don't want to listen to us. So could you just take the time to go ahead and introduce our great guests? Yep. So today's topic, um, we're talking spirituality and mental health in the African-American community. And um, this episode idea came from Dr. Tyree, who we had on uh, a couple episodes ago. Uh, we just wanted to kind of continue the conversation about, um, yeah, just us as two white students at Liberty. Like we just, we want to hear from our professors and we want to hear from our African-American professors, especially just how things have been going over the last several years. And, um, you know, like, like with Dr. Tyree, uh, you know, Robert, I think we both kind of approach this conversation with a little bit of fear and trembling. Um, but we know that that's where that is. That's the breach that we want to step into. Right. And so, Dr. Tyree, I think she saw that, she noticed that, she noticed that desire to be wobbly, as she calls it. Um, right, she right, really recommended yeah. um, Dr. Ford and Dr. Crook as great professors to bring on to kind of continue the conversation. So we're really grateful to have them here and just to introduce them uh, really quickly. Dr. Stephanie Ford is a licensed psychologist in Ohio and a Liberty professor with expertise in administrating land-based online and hybrid university learning platforms. She utilizes her training in diversity, equity, and inclusion to assist individuals and organizations to achieve wellness. Her clinical counseling services have been provided in outpatient and inpatient hospital units, community organizations, private practice, as well as university health and counseling centers. Dr. Tylon Crook is a Liberty professor and licensed school counselor in Mississippi, Georgia, and Ohio. Dr. Crook's research agenda is focused in the areas of multiculturalism, equity, and social justice that includes social justice advocacy in pre-K through 12 settings, 
anti-racist school counseling, implicit bias, reduction training, and mental health issues and spirituality within the African-American community. He is also a veteran of the United States Air Force and currently lives in Georgia. So Dr. Ford and Dr. Crook, we are so blessed and honored and grateful to have you here. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having us. I'm excited uh, to participate. Excuse me. Yeah, good morning again. Um, Let's get it. Um, I I love this. (laughs) Let's do it. Let's do it. And, you know, uh, we should have hit record before we started the episode because just the exchange between you two was really edifying, beautiful. And uh, just the the way that you clearly um, hold one another with esteem and love is really beautiful uh, to see, especially for us as online students. We don't get to see the um, the affection that our professors have for one another. So. Mm (laughs) It's beautiful to see just the esteem you have for one another professionally, but also personally. So thanks for that. Mm -hmm. So let's just get into it. Like Dr. Cook said, um, maybe kind of starting with you, Dr. Ford, uh, in what ways do you see the intersections of spirituality and mental health at work in the African-American community? Thank you so much for that question. I tell you, um, this question really gets me excited, right? Um, When I just think about uh, recent events uh, throughout, as you described, throughout the past few years that have occurred in our country with various movements around Black Lives Matter and and Me Too, the question has been, how is the African-American community responding to the stressors of life and how are they working toward achieving wellness? I appreciate this question, but I do want to clarify that my response to this question is really a general response. I want you all to be mindful that there are a great deal of individual differences um, in the African-American community. I think about our engagement earlier uh, before you press record and how we talked about being from different regions of the United States of America. And so that definitely impacts how we may um, perceive our willingness to go to receive services and or even if we consider receiving services um, in our community. But there are a couple of things that really stand out for me. You talked about the or the question and you asked me about the intersection of mental health and being an African-American and spirituality. And the thought that came to my mind was that, is it truly an intersection or is it interwoven Mm -hmm. in the African-American community? Um, When I think about that, I have to think about that in the context of Africans coming to the continent, coming to the United States of America. And for some, uh, there was a learning of a new religion. There are arguments about Christianity already existing on the continent of Africa. Um, prior to Africans coming to America, but that's a whole nother podcast, so we won't get into that. But what I do want to spend time on is that this sense of spirituality has been interwoven into the culture of people from of African-American descent in the United States of America. And so when we talk about spirituality, um, in my mind, there is a separation on some concepts between religion and spirituality, but then they're integrated at the same time. So from a historical perspective, we know that our ancestors who were slaves and people who I am so grateful, grateful, grateful for their prayers will never know their name. They don't know my name, but I know and I'm convinced God has been so good to me and people in my community that I know they were praying for me. And so we hear narratives about 
how our ancestors who were slaves and how they had to work the land and when they weren't permitted to actually pray out loud that sometimes when they would be down low in the ground working on that soil that they would pray into the pots. <laughs> they just lift up a prayer. So that's why I want to say that it is not necessarily an intersection, but it's interwoven. But what does it look like now? Now it looks like it can be manifested in several ways. And so I want to talk um, briefly about African-American women and research around African-American women and mental health and spirituality. And a couple of things really jump off the page for me is that spirituality and well-being are often considered protective variables for addressing wellness and mental health in the African-American community. That there is this interconnectedness due to concepts of divine reciprocity, um, emotional equilibrium, empowering change. So what we find is that for African-American women, that spirituality, religion, that they are protective variables. And there was a study by um, Wellington and Murray. And Wellington and Murray found in a sample of women who experienced domestic violence that individuals who really had a high level of spiritual connectedness, high church attendance, that this actually resulted in them having a decreased level of depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. So what does that say to me? African-Americans, when it comes to mental health, that spirituality is definitely essential, that it is a protective variable based upon what we know from the research, based upon my lived experiences when I think about our ancestry and the history of African-Americans. Another thing that I want to share is that we have to be mindful that people operationalize their religion differently. So we have to be aware of one's perception of God, whether or not they take God everywhere they go. So like, mm -hmm. I'm that girl, like if they say, oh, um, you actually, you have a 10% coupon for this, or we have a 10% coupon, we can apply to whatever I might be trying to purchase in a store. I'm like, glory to God, God goes everywhere I go. <laughs> or for someone else, they may compartmentalize God to their Sunday morning worship. It doesn't mean that one is better or worse than the other. Mm-hmm. But what I want to stress is that not necessarily an intersection from my understanding and my research, but definitely an interconnectedness that helps the African-American community members with their well-being. And we haven't even gotten to different types of religion um, because I think that's something else we have to be mindful of when we talk about spirituality and mental health and African-Americans. Yeah, um, just to, oh my gosh, not afford... Um, <laughs> you raised a lot of subjects there and we, we are running parallel and I can, if I were to take a divergent arm, not a divergent, but an arm from some of the things that you, I would probably focus on that piece where you differentiated between, um, how spirituality and mental health aren't necessarily intersecting, but are interwoven. Yeah, that is so important. Um, and then it goes all the way to the historical context that you've shared as well. Uh, but I think uh, if I remember the question, you said, how is it at work in the African-American community? And I take that to be a question about the present as well. 
And so if I were to go that route, um, how spirituality and mental health are at work, I believe, currently uh, is in specifically in a way the protective factors that Dr. Ford highlighted. Um, coping. Oh, you, you, you mentioned when uh, the ancestors would, 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 would toil uh, and they couldn't pray out loud and because it wasn't a Sunday during the designated hour that they were allowed to pray. And so they might pray into the soil or in the tradition that I'm from here in the South, they might moan and hum these hymns, which is in essence a sense of prayer in and of itself as well. And I would say those traditions, those those cultural sort of, uh, uh, what, what would you call them? Those, those, those cultural practices are still with us today. And, and Dr. Ford mentioned it. Oh man, she, you're reading my mind. She mentioned it as well. She gets the 10% coupon off and it's like, praise God right here, you know? <laughs> and then she goes and she describes me as someone who compartmentalizes it and then for me, it's, you know, when I find my space, that's when I let go. And most of the time that space is with me and mine, so to speak. Yeah. And so, and I think that's how um, those examples are how spirituality is interwoven into our mental health within the black community. Uh, and let me pre uh, give another precursor as well. I'm here in the South, born and raised, son of a Baptist minister um from the state of alabama so i've got all of that history undergirding my experiences and my own development as i came through quote unquote the church and the most even as a child i would i couldn't understand it then but now that i've gotten formal training i understand it when i would see these expressions of joy and sadness throughout our church services I've come to know those things as cathartic experiences, as coping experiences from what people had dealt with Monday through Saturday. What they had dealt with living their experiences as black folks in the United States, both good and bad experiences, right? And so I still see that continuing to the day, right? Um, and then I before went on to also highlight black women who are the backbone of the African-American church today. Um, I, I've read a lot and, you know, all of the data shows this. You can go into any church congregation and you'll see this. Um, not only see it in numbers or it, it with regards to um, people in their presence, but with regards to the work that's being done outside of the church as well. And that's another way how spirituality is interwoven and is manifesting uh, within uh, many within uh, the black community, both within the church and outside of the church. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and I use church very generally because, again, spirituality, <laughs> I have family members who are of all religious backgrounds, <laughs> um, all very spiritual people. Very much so, yeah, who I'm still learning from, yes. Mm -hmm. I think that's awesome, um, what you said, and it made me think about um, another 
factor that emerges for me in the in the church and outside of the church as you described or the larger church is mm -hmm. um, when you talked about that worship and that moaning because although I am not from the South, but if you know a lot about the great migration of African Americans, yes. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. And so we are considered Alabama North, where Chicago <laughs> is considered Mississippi North. So there are a lot of traditions that are rooted in the culture of being from Alabama. And my family actually did the migration really early. So I had older parents, but my dad was born in Chicago and my mom was actually born in Cleveland. So my grandparents, are the ones who are from the South. But yeah. what I found is that even in the moans and the groans and the expression of spirituality from the hardships of life is that there's this element that is the caretaking of the collective that mm -hmm. takes place in the African-American community. Um, we often think about caretaking of the collective in, as a term utilized in community organizing, but it's really something that we have done historically. So yes, um, you may have had a bad day and it's been a tough week, but you know, if you go to that church building on Sunday morning, that there will be some people who are going to understand without yeah. a word being uttered. <laughs> I know, I know that moan. I, I know that cry like a mother and her child, you know, when there's an emergency and you know, when like, okay, I just need a little intention here. So mm -hmm. yes, I think that we really have to understand that spirituality is exercised on a day-to-day -day basis, whether you are like Dr. Crook and you are more reserved. And so you wait until you get into your, your space where you can let loose. Or if you're like me, thank you, Jesus, for that 10% off coupon. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You know, it's a joy to listen to both of you speak. And I, I remember an experience we had with Dr. Tyree, like, you know, Robert and I are trying to understand and, and kind of step in to this, this realm here. And Dr. Tyree kind of called us out with as much love as she could muster. She pretty much said, like, not every African American person is going to be the same. And right. we're like, all right, all right, well, thanks for forgiving us on that, you know, just trying to understand. And so I think just listening to you speak, like, you know, the regional uh, differences there, that that's huge. Um, but I think also the experience of you, Dr. Crook, as a man and you, Dr. Ford, as a woman, there's an element there, too. And that kind of ties into the, the follow up that we had planned for today uh, based on this question. You know, this idea of especially with COVID, it's become almost trendy to talk about mental health, which is mm -hmm. great, but could also have some drawbacks, uh, you know, just the wrong ideas about mental health or anxiety and depression. And But at the same time, within the Christian context, too, you have that, that spiritual bypass idea of using spirituality as a way to avoid doing the work of mental health. Um, so I wonder, and maybe Dr. Kirk, we'll start with you if we could, like, do you find a greater openness or avoidance in the African-American community to pursuing mental health? Um, especially as we've learned in class that like African-American men may have a different posture toward pursuing mental health, uh, pursuing counseling, pursuing therapy, as, as opposed to maybe uh, African-American women. So yeah, just curious your thoughts on that, what you've seen. Yes. Yeah, so um, it's a very interesting, very interesting question, very relevant question because there are a lot of factors that go into play here. Again, um, when we talk about generational factors, that's going to play a role. Um, again, my, my dad uh, it, it has been a pastor for 30, 30, 40 plus years. 
you know, I'm just now able to work with him to set up <laughs> some supports for individuals within my home church with regards to mental health uh, issues. Uh, it took it took years to get him to that point to where he would be accepting of me to come in and to do that. For, and, you know, um, it'd be another podcast as to why it took those years uh, as well. Uh, however, there's been a, there's been a, some research in late over the past 10 years or so. Uh, Campbell and Littleton, really, that one really stands out to me. There's one I reviewed last night because I'm uh, they're They're from here in Georgia. But they they uh, surveyed a specific congregation with regards to uh, the perceptions of mental health and the needs of the community within their church community, their spiritual community. And they found several things real quick um, that they, they realized that there was an unmet need with regards to uh, mental health topics and services and, and, and issues and that nature. They were able to highlight that there is still a stigma around mental health um, and mental illness that exists amongst not just the black community in general, but still within black church or black religious communities as well. Um, and also that now that people are starting to move more towards these types of services, and are preferring those services to be filtered through their church communities. And so in, in essence, what, what they found was that there is a move more and a, a more openness towards mental health counseling services to address some of the things. You know, I, I talked to my dad quite a bit. He said, you know what, son? He said, here's where I've been because I met with someone and I knew that they needed more help that I could provide to them as their pastor. As he said, so I didn't know what to do. And then I remember you've been kind of dropping breadcrumbs over the past couple of years. I said, well, Pop, this is what I could do. <laughs> I'm glad you asked, right? And so and so here we are, and it's a move in the right direction. Uh, with his generation, uh, boomers, also, I, I'm, I'm a Gen Xer, and we tend to be a little bit more open than are the previous generations. And what I'm finding is that the younger generations, the millennials and Gen Z are specifically within the African-American community are more open than some of the previous generations. That's a good trend for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, so just based on the, the, the literature that I've read, based on my own personal experiences, I would say that there is a trend upward with regards to openness to mental health counseling services and there being a connection to uh, people's faith traditions, wh whatever those faith traditions might be. Yeah. Uh, now you highlighted with regards to men and, and uh, black men. And again, that's another uh, <laughs> uh, sub demographic where you're going to have to disaggregate because black men are going to be more resistant from what I found than black women with regards to their openness towards mental health counseling services wrapped within uh, the faith community. I meet with a group of friends sometimes. We, we go all the way back to, you know, pre-K, 
high school, we, we still meet. Yeah, we, we've been meeting since COVID via Zoom, and now we've got this really formalized group where we meet. And, of course, I was going to put on one of our meeting agendas, mental health. <laughs> right? And my guys, they were open and discussing their faith and how they feel like their faith is all they need. And in many cases, it is. In all cases, it is all you need. And what I have to do is retort with our faith is all that we need. And it's because of our faith that we're able to go and find additional supports when we need them as well. Right. Uh, and so we use our faith also in finding those additional supports. And so it's been a it's been a tug and a pull. Right. It's been a tug and a pull with, with, with my guys. And but I think those conversations, the barbershop conversations, the affinity group conversations are what it's going to take to move not only black men and women, but people in general towards receiving uh, the help that they might need with regards to mental health issues. Yeah, I'll pause mm -hmm. there. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much for um, sharing that, Dr. Cook. I, I see the same thing. Um, actually, in May, because it's Mental Health Awareness Month, I am finding that I am having more churches reach out to me um, to ask me to come and to share information about mental health. Uh, I really feel like COVID opened the door for um, congregations to begin to have discussions around this. Um, an article that I read by Thompson and um, et al. in 2020, it was recently published, talked about the COVID pandemic and how um, public health workers and other professionals work with pastors and they created these videos to help disseminate accurate information. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that stood out for me was that there was not a strong mental health component to that. And it was critical. Why was it critical? Because we had ritual, ritual disruption. And what do I mean by that? We could not gather on Sunday morning so that we can groan and we can worship and we could praise collectively about the challenges that occurred throughout the week. Another experience, not just African-Americans, but all Americans in the United States faced was that we were looking at the loss of lives from people in our communities and our churches mm -hmm. in large numbers. I don't know how many of you would look at the reports that would come up on that dashboard from our governors um, at least every day or every other day or at least one news conference a week, if not two per week in my area, in my mm -hmm. state. I um, have the privilege of having my 16-year-old, um, now 17-year-old at the time home. And so she was our data collector. She was like, okay, listen, in this county, we have X amount. In grandma's county, we have X amount. So she would break it down for us. So there was disruption of being able to go to church, then the loss mm -hmm. of lives. And then we could not worship the way mm -hmm. we would worship at a funeral. Mm -hmm. And the issue around trauma, 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 trauma. Yes. Boy, boy, boy. Not only are we living in a pandemic, but in some regards, we're pretending like we're not living in a pandemic, even though we really are living in a pandemic. <laughs> and I would argue some of that still occurs today. <laughs> and... What are we going to do? So churches were like knocking on doors or sending emails since they couldn't virtually knock on a door. So this past May, I've had an opportunity to not only minister in my state, 
um, to do some things um, that went that were virtual, were live stream. And I even went to like Philly, like I went to a lot of places virtually mm-hmm. to speak to people about um, mental health in the African-American community. So I get the sense that there is not the avoidance like it used to be, but there's a couple of things we have to address. And I think the first one is trust, trust. We heard a lot about the Tuskegee experiment um, during the COVID pandemic. But we also have to be mindful of the mental, the psychological components to the African-American experience in America and how that impacts how we respond. And so, yes, I do hear people wanting more services. I agree with you. Um, The older the population, not necessarily the case. But I'm also really impressed because I see organizations saying we need to do something to support um, the individuals we serve. And I'm going to call out um, the National Football League. I see in our practice where people in their office are saying, hey, you have an African-American male psychologist on your staff. We want to connect with you because we want to have someone who is outside of our organization, outside of the NFL, to speak to some of the needs of the players And this is something that is occurring across the country. And these are African-American men Mm -hmm. playing for the National Football League, playing for the National Basketball Association. So now we're kind of moving away from, I'm strong, man, nothing phases me. Dr. Crook, I'm going to use your word because I so love that because I'm not military. I'm battle-hardened. Is that that the (laughs) word? Yes, from last week. Yeah, I remember. heart into like, you know what? Mm, my armor has some kinks in it. I mm. need some help. And so definitely an outreach. Mm-hmm. That is so good. The, the the way that both of you were able to just frame all that. And, and it's kind of a good segue. You talked about COVID and and really what the effects we've, we've seen in, 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 in society. And I think it, it also even goes beyond COVID. I mean, these last few years have been, you know, such a social and, and racial, you know, unrest. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you I think back to, to, you know, the George Floyd and, and, and Black Lives Matter and that movement and everything else. I mean, those are only two things, but it seems like it's it's a it's a continuous thing that he stacks upon COVID and, and all the other stuff that, you know, that, that's going on in the world. And then just the personal stuff that people face on an everyday basis it, and, and kind of maybe Dr. Ferd, if you want to take the lead on this one, but in what ways have you seen a lot of those kind of social racial injustice events um, impact mental health among specifically the African-American community? Thank you. Um, Wow, this past year has, it's been a lot, right? And I really felt like it was a year where the cream rose to the top because what we saw were experiences that many African-Americans have been living for a very long time. Um, It was televised, I think a Gil Scott, Gil Scott, Gil Scott, um, that the revolution would be televised (laughs) from the 60s poets. And it was televised. It, you know, he said it wouldn't be televised, but it wouldn't be on. It would be on the big screen, if I recall correctly. Forgive me for watching that. 
But it was, it was televised. It was on our TVs, it was on our internet, it was on our smartphones. And so there was a sense in my community and the communities that I'm connected with across the United States and even in, um, in Canada that people were like, oh yeah, okay. Like, so I've been holding on to all this stuff for decades. And some of the stuff I'm holding on to is my own personal experience. Some of it is my dad's experience, my granddad's experience, my great-granddad's experience. And now I actually get a chance to exhale. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because people see me. Mm-hmm. People see me. They see me. Now, whether or not they want to breathe me in is another thing. And this lived experience, but they see me. Now, my mom would say, it doesn't cost you anything to say hello to people, even if you don't know them, because sometimes it's just important to say, I see you, I see mm-hmm. you in the space, and that can be a hello. So the world got to see the lived experiences of African-American men. But that also opened up a whole bunch of thoughts related to mental health, related to wellness. I am the mother of two African-American young adult men. I love Jacoby and Sekou. I would give my life for those two young men. (laughs) And so I'm watching that oldest one who's living in the northern part of the Midwest and he's out there and Black Lives Matter. And I see my child standing at the front line in front of the police and he's like, Mom, look at this news clip. Like, we're out here doing it. But my heart is like, that's my kid. And I remember being that, that same person. Yeah. With Rodney King. I remember being an undergrad and going like, oh, we got to do something about this. Yeah. So not only do people see our experiences, hear our experiences. I have to say here, because when I think about George Floyd, I chose not to look at the video. But during the court hearing, I listened to the video and it hurt. Oh, it hurt. It hurt so bad. Mm-hmm. It hurt so bad that my Airedale Terrier was in the room and he actually had a response because you could hear the groans and the agony of a man who was dying. He began to bark and look around and run around. That's an Airedale Terrier, a dog. That's my experience. So what did it do for the mental health of those of us Mm. who have been a Georgina Ford or a George Floyd in our cities? We've been stopped by police. Praise God, we maybe we did not die. So this opened up a wealth of questions about who we are. It also impacted, I would, I would argue, our mental health and our cognitive process around the racialization of the mind and cognitive schemas of Black masculinity. Oh, wow. I think about um, a book by um, Jackson and, and Hobson, Hobson, I believe it was Hobson. And what they talked about was the challenge of the perception of blackness and the issue of, I am given no chance. I am slave not to the idea of others, but to my appearance. So then that begins to challenge 
mental health perceptions of how does my appearance impact everything that happens to me when I enter into the room? And so people began to talk about that. And I've never seen so many um, Instagram posts and Twitter feeds about self-care and self-concept. And you saw Black is Beautiful from the 60s translating to Black Lives Matter, loving the skin I am. I'm, I greet you all this morning with flat ironed hair, but this hair can also be a big Afro. And even in the appearance of African-American women wearing natural hair more than we used to wear. All of these are mental health variables mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. related to myself, my self-concept, my future. And whether or not my future is determined by others or is it determined by what I bring into the room. So George Floyd, the Me Too movement, all of these social change and social advocacy and um, related to social justice, these things have definitely impacted the mental health of African-Americans. And Dr. Crook, I would argue that this has been a beautiful thing for African-American men because they realized that it wasn't just my little neck of the woods, even though I knew it was happening everywhere. But now others see it and it gives me a space to be able to say, oh, yeah, what they did to George Floyd is wrong. But then I also began to hear I statements. Mm -hmm. This happened to me. Mm -hmm. I felt this way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. <laughs> so, Dr. Ford, <laughs> I um. So, so the original question um, was it how did how have the racial incidents of the recent past impacted um, black folks today? And you know, Dr. Ford just captured captured it in a way. I, I think uh, she she captured it in a way that that speaks to the essence of who we are as human beings living living this life but she also captured it in a, in a way where the uniqueness of some of those experiences um and how those experiences have impacted there were a plethora of themes there you talked about how you your parents your great-grandparents and your great-great-grandparents uh we carry those experiences and that's because of trauma and trauma can be passed from generation to generation not only physiologically but definitely psychologically as well and so what the recent incidents did i think was to bring that trauma to the forefront and when it brought the trauma to the forefront then Black folks were able to demonstrate the resilience that we've had since being in this country. They were able to demonstrate the, the righteous indignation uh, that, that we have in uh, enduring some of those instances where an injustice has uh, occurred. They were able to, to show how we could connect with people who were from not, not within our community in a in a in a show in a in a uh, in a show of love for fellow human beings, right? Which is inherent to our struggle uh, in in this country. 
for all of the rights that the country has promised to all of its citizens. And so um, what I've seen, I, I, I held, you know, it was COVID <laughs> and then there was, you know, then there was a, all of this stuff was brought to a head. And so because I have family members who are immunodeficient, I, and here's my I statement, I felt guilt because I wanted to be on the front line with your son, Dr. Ford. And I, I like, but I couldn't because COVID was still real and I didn't want to bring it home to my immunodeficient family members, right? So what did I do? So I started virtually hosting these things all over with family, with friends, with everyone that I have family, friends all over the country. And the consistent theme that came about were uh, characteristics of trauma. Um, you know, you can call it race-based trauma, which can definitely occur because of overt and covert instances of discrimination, perceived and uh, real, uh, all of those different things. Then people start remembering it triggered some of their experiences from their youth, including yours truly. Yeah, uh, being an 18-year-old kid driving through a neighborhood to get to a local um, uh, beach, neighborhood being more affluent at a time of hour where I probably shouldn't have been there, but we friends were going anyway and pulled over and faced down the roads and all these things with guns drawn, you know, traumatizing. Yeah, traumatizing. And so when we saw George Floyd, for a lot of the folks that I spoke with, it was that re-traumatizing and then that ability to say, you know what, we got to get to it some more. <laughs> or in the case of the generations before me, we got to get to it again. Put your walking shoes back on, put your walking boots back on and those sorts of things. Um, and, you know, that, of course, with the mental health dynamics and components, we also know that race-based trauma is not something that's found in the DSM-5. Uh, there are a lot of reasons for that. <laughs> I won't get into them. That's another podcast. Uh <laughs> But some of the characteristics of post-traumatic stress syndrome as um, uh, have manifested uh, within the community in ways that we're still grappling with. Um, there are people in my circle who are still sort of trying to claw their ways out using the most powerful and coherent coping strategy that they know their spirituality. <laughs> oh my gosh. Right. And they go to that because that's what got us through once. That's what has sustained us. And that's what's probably going to get us through moving forward. <laughs> so I'll end there because I, I want to be respectful of time. Uh, but yeah. That's great. And I, I want to put in um, the concept of trauma bonding. I think mm -hmm. that's really important in identifying healthy coping strategies for um, trauma bonding, because that was something that arose from the George Floyd um, death. And you talked about Dr. Crook connecting with your friends and I connected with my friends and other professionals and really the sense of trauma bonding and wanting to break a cycle of continuing to have mistrust for police officials and figuring out how do we really engage in 
community policing and changing some things in the greater Cleveland um, area. So I, I really feel like this gave us an opportunity to address trauma, like you said, to address trauma bonding in those relationships that we form, whether they be um, amongst uh, our partners or even in friendship relationships and how we can have effective community com communication, excuse me, and um, and healthy coping strategies to support the needs of all people. Yes. Once again, caring for our, our larger community. Yes. I love the trauma piece there. And Dr. Cook, I'm so glad you brought that up. And, you know, Dr. Ford just kind of hitting that home. I just finished module one of EMDR training uh, last week. And you know, Shapiro, <laughs> she she talks about trauma and she said, you know, we we think of rape, molestation and combat, but we forget. And she says this very specifically, childhood humiliations. And Dr. Craig, you telling that story about you being 18 and getting pulled over and your face is on the concrete or on the asphalt and there's a gun drawn. I mean, the, my experience of listening to you say it like humiliation, that's humiliating. Mm -hmm. And that story, I'm a, I love reading history kind of like as a self-care piece. And I uh, read about a year ago, a very large history on Ulysses S. Grant and uh, mm -hmm. just the humiliation of the Southern black community immediately after the Civil War especially mm -hmm. as elections and free elections started and, and the, the black vote was initiated and just the humiliations and humiliations of generations, you know, and, and then, so to hear you tell that story, it's just like that, that brings me immediately back. And that, mm -hmm. according to Shapiro, that is trauma, right? That, that's a traumatic mm -hmm. experience because you, you were humiliated. Mm -hmm. And then, so thank you for sharing that. Um, and Dr. Ford just kind of, you're sharing there about, I mean, Robert and I were typing back and forth. Holy moly. When you brought up that, that you felt like you, and I think you're speaking on, on behalf of so many, just like, finally you were able to exhale. Mm. I thought that's a huge takeaway for me, uh, from this. And, and this kind of leads into our last question. Like Robert and I have never, ever, ever regretted any of these conversations, even though we've always been afraid to start them. We've never, ever regretted it. And even with our clients who are African-American and the meeting with, you know, professors such as yourselves, even though we're like, we're going to, we're going to say something wrong, we're going to mess this up. And maybe we've already said something wrong, but even like the mercy that you've shown and, and has time and time again, like been our experience that it's just like, just go for it. So for our white listeners out there, yo, just go for it because look what happens. Look at this conversation, you know, um, that being said, um, you know, I, for both of you, feel free to, to jump in on answering this question. But, you know, being that Robert and I are both white and the majority of the counseling students and students at Liberty in general are, are white, you know, can you offer us any insight into how we can best be culturally sensitive, appropriate, affirming and empathetic, uh, especially <laughs> as we navigate the blind spots that we probably have and because they're blind spots we're not even aware of? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For me... <laughs> For me, the notion of cultural humility is central. And I, I believe that before one can engage in cultural humility, they must engage in the counseling core components of working towards cultural competence. And those three areas would be increasing one's awareness of self, their cultural selves uh, and others, obtaining their knowledge and then integrating all of that to inform their counseling skills. 
Once you've done that, then you're able to engage in cultural humility where you are others oriented. There's that empathy piece um, where you commit not only as a professional, but as a person where you commit to being open to continued learning. There, I've seen where some people can compartmentalize this aspect of counseling in the profession. And for me, I, I, I don't know how people can compartmentalize it without allowing it to be a part of who they are as new people. Um, and, and I would offer that you cannot be a culturally competent counselor unless you are working to be a culturally competent person. Yeah. Uh, the critical self-examination. And y'all, no one is harder on Dr. Ty than Dr. Ty. I'm a work in progress. And we have to engage in the critical, <laughs> in the critical self-examination. Um, uh, but you specifically said for white counselors, and here's one that, that I'll, I'll throw out, and that is to avoid the colorblindness as you are living in a colorful world. <laughs> who I am, race, even though it's a social construct and the hue of my skin, we can definitely see the color and the hue of my skin, the hue of your skin as well. I, 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 it's why I sometimes I'm now playing with these terms when I hear people of color. Well, I'm like, everybody's a person of color because white is a color. <laughs> if we're going to take it literally. Well, I think what we're talking about, those cultural dynamics within a society where the racial constructs denotes those who are not white as other. And so uh, engaging in those cons in those conversations, but most importantly, most importantly, you must go to the other side of the tracks and engage with people who are, who are in, right there in your community from a place of humility, from a place where you're seeking to learn. It is the only way you get to learn culturally about others. Um, I, I, my first job as a school counselor was in the local Atlanta area at a high school where there was a very, very large Vietnamese population, right? I'm from Southern Alabama. There were very, very few Vietnamese individuals from Southern Alabama. I needed to, in order to be able to serve my students in a way that was culturally appropriate, uh, I needed to learn more, but I don't, not only did I need to learn more, I needed to experience more. So I engaged the, the, the community and they welcomed me in. Keep in mind, I didn't engage the community as someone who's walking through a museum to observe and to say, oh, that's a nice piece. And no, nothing like that. I didn't engage the community as an expert coming in to tell all the people what they should and should not, <laughs> right? I engaged the community from a place of humility where I sought to learn. And that required that I keep my mouth shut, which was hard sometimes because I like to talk. <laughs> All right. Uh, and so the only time I would talk was asking questions that were appropriate within the cultural context of the of the folks that I was working with. And so I would encourage all counselors, regardless of their uh, racial or ethnic background, to engage in cultural humility. But living in the United States where we know that uh, race does matter, <laughs> to quote Cornell West from back in 93 or 90, whatever it was, uh, that you, we need our white brothers and sisters to engage more and to do exactly what you highlighted, uh, uh, Jeff, and that is to 
um, embrace uncomfortableness and to embrace courage and knowing that if you're wrong or if you offend, that, that you're, you're coming from a place of humility and from a, from a place of love and to be able to explain that. So I'll stop there because, I, again, this is another whole workshop. <laughs> it is. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm in agreement um, going on with a, a very going in, excuse me, with a very humble perspective. We hear the term cultural humility and I think about multicultural competencies and the bottom line, it's being humble. The word mm -hmm. of God says is that if we humble ourselves, that God would be the lifter of our heads. Yes. So going in and being humble. Um, I love, Dr. Cook, that you uh, mentioned uh, being courageous, because as I was thinking about this question, Joshua came to mind to be strong and courageous. Right. The Lord, your God is with you wherever you go. And mm -hmm. that's something that I hope that the students uh, who are listening to this, that they are willing to do that, whether you are white, whether you are African-American, like Dr. Crook, go out, learn about different communities, but go being humble. Go with the, um, not saying like, oh, well, my food doesn't taste like this or my food doesn't <laughs> taste like that. When I have to go into different communities, the only question that I'm asking about food is whether or not it has nuts in it because I have a nut allergy and I just <laughs> want to live another day, Lord willing. <laughs> so that's the only thing. But I am willing to try everything um, when I am engaging um, the Southeast Asian community, Indian community members. There is something about the women in that population when they interact with me, they just love to feed me. So I have to make sure that I'm going with an empty stomach. So I'm just ready to receive their food. But while I'm eating the food and enjoying the fellowship, like I am really feeding off of this cultural exchange, what I am learning, really just being submitted. And I spend a lot of time um probably too much being a little self-absorbed. And the reason why I say that is because I'm always checking in my head, like after that experience, like my own self-awareness, like, okay, well, what was happening for you in that space? What were you thinking about? Why were you uncomfortable with this? And what perceived uh, notions did you have? So if she is mm -hmm. feeding me and I'm looking at her hands and in my mind, if I think her hands do not look clean, like what does that what does that say about how you perceive her or this community member? So I just mm -hmm. give you all I give you all that as an example because this is my real lived experience, and I've been doing mm -hmm. this work for a long time, and I still have a laundry list of things that I have to go through and that I have to think about and that I often journal about to mm. ensure that, like, okay, Steph, did you really leave your bias at the door? And mm -hmm. if you brought it in with you, what did you do with it? How did that impact how you engaged and interacted with people? Um, one of the things that I would share is that I really love that Hayes addressing model. I think that's a wonderful tool um, for students to use. And another thing that I'm mindful of is that when I enter into the space and to help have empathy for other people and to help our students have empathy for others that may not look like them, I, I say to myself, do not be the most interesting person in the room, but be the most interested. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because that, for me, helps me to go in from a very humble perspective. Mm -hmm. I'm the most interested. I want to hear what you have to say. I want to see you. And once again, as my mother taught me, you say hello and you be present. So for yes. the time I have with you, I'm going to try to give you my best. 
And that is not always me saying something to you, but me being available to you. So yes. that means you want to hold hands and we're going to walk down this hallway together. We're going to hold hands and walk down this hallway together because we may not be saying a single thing, but holding hands and being embraced with one another, that says a lot. And that's my heart connecting with your heart. So being humble, being open, self-reflecting. And I have a question for you all. What are your thoughts? What are you all going to begin to do? Or have you started doing to assist you with this process of being more aware and demonstrating empathy for others? <laughs> Jeff's pointing to me, so I, I guess I, <laughs> I, gotta, I gotta go first. Um, you know, this these conversations, I was gonna say this, and, and thank you for asking that, because um, and I think I speak on behalf of Jeff, these conversations have been so valuable to me to gain an understanding. And like you said, just to be humble and listen and be present because I think for so long, um, I had a one way perspective view, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that happens with our own, our own experiences, our own life experiences, our own culture, you know, like you said, your own biases and, mm -hmm. and to be able to stop and listen and be, be curious and and like you said, embrace that uncomfortableness. But being intentional and willing to have those conversations, um, and know that it doesn't have to be perfect, and know that there could be a difference of opinion. But being able to actually just listen and understand, and 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 both of you guys, what you shared today was so powerful in that then the perspective of what has happened in your own lives and your own experiences that I can take that away and 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 just kind of store that and help shape my frame and my conversation not just relationally with other individuals friends and whatnot but professionally in terms mm -hmm. of how I operate as an effective counsel counselor in a multicultural world and and mm -hmm. Dr. I wrote down that what you said, Dr. Kirk, avoid the color blindness in a colorful world. And I think that just sums it up so well for me is that we're in a colorful world. People are different. People have different experiences in life, but that doesn't change, you know, who they are and the value that, that God has given them. So yes. that's kind of the approach. But I'll tell you what, we've been blessed to have the opportunity to have these conversations. And I hope through that our listeners have had the same type of blessing because um, that's the purpose of it is hopefully we can we can move that needle by listening more. So mm -hmm. Jeff, I don't know if you want to add anything on that. Yeah, I just I just think of times where I know that I've failed. And I think the more that I have these conversations, we have these conversations, I recognize or understand more deeply the depth of that failure and the repercussions of it. Um, whereas before I was like, yeah, that was really the wrong thing to say. You're a real idiot. Way to go. Um, but now it's like, ooh, I could send it to a white person and that would be hurtful. But because I said it to the black person that has this particular experience, I'm thinking of one story in particular of a of a man from Jamaica uh, that I worked with a while ago. And I just remember saying something hurtful to him that had nothing to do with his race, but I realized that what I said would have different implications for him because of his race. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so I understand. And for some reason, that just story has been sticking really strongly uh, at this part of our conversation. So I guess that's a place where I need to pray and, uh, yeah, just reach out to him even and ask for forgiveness too, or even conveying understanding, because it's been my experience that conveying understanding has really built a lot of bridges. Well, thank you all so much for answering that question. And Jeff, I love that you gave that example because mm -hmm. I thought, you know what? It's okay to fail. It's okay to fail. It's what do you do with the failure? When yes. I was training, I had a professor named Dr. John Queener, and he would talk to us about recovery skills because he said that when it comes to addressing diversity and being present in the space, you are going to fail. You are going to make a mistake because love to ensue, appreciate the research. Um, however, when I was at a land base and I would teach about the different cultural groups, I would have my students look up at the ceiling because we had tiles and I would say, let's pretend each tile represent a, represents a cultural group. And then there were specks in the tile. And so each speck represents various differences um, because not every group is the same. Right. So what we do is we train you all like, OK, African-Americans or people of African-American descent got to get it good. So I'm ready. <laughs> and you're going to make mistakes because people are not all the same. If they're from the same geographical region, in fact, on my street, everybody is not the same. In my house. <laughs> right. In your house. Thank you. Because we may all eat dinner. But we may eat it at different times. Some of us may eat it with the TV on, et cetera, et cetera. Excuse me. Jeff, what I love is that if you still work with that person, taking the opportunity to say, you know what? I, I took a moment to think about that conversation we had two, three months ago, and it's still sitting on my heart. And so I wanted to bring that back up. Because I want to acknowledge that what I said may have been offensive to you. Mm -hmm. And after I had the time to think about it, I said, I want to definitely discuss this with you. This gives that person the opportunity to say, oh, Jeff, that wasn't offensive at all. I didn't even think twice about that. <laughs> or, Sean, I really appreciate that you took the time to come back and talk to me about that. Mm -hmm. This can happen in a counseling session. This can happen in a conversation like this. Don't deflect. Don't walk away. Show up. Yes. Show up in these hard conversations. Yes. Be present because there are going to be some things that I probably have said in our time together that when I self-reflect, I may shoot you all an email. I may say, you all, can we just get together one more time? I just want to talk about this podcast we did. <laughs> Because I had thoughts about did I did I did I. <laughs> so it is okay to make a mistake. The beautiful thing is that there is grace. Yes. And that you can utilize recovery skills to come back and engage in that conversation another day. And if that relationship is done and the ship has sailed, you ask God, not necessarily you, Jeff, but to those who are listening. What was I supposed to obtain from this experience? Mm -hmm. And how can I use what I learned for other relationships in the future, professional or personal? So thank you all for sharing. 
I say this with great hesitation because you're a clinical psychologist and I'm not, um, but please, Dr. Ford, do not ruminate over anything that you've said today. <laughs> I love it. Thank yes. you. Yeah. Good call, Joe. I love it. I uh, love it. Conscientiousness does result in a lot of anxiety. Yep. Yep. <laughs> uh, this was great. You guys, you guys are fantastic. You're two beautiful people and it's been an absolute honor and a blessing to have you both on today. Um, this was, this was powerful. It was fantastic. And I know I'm looking forward to going back and re-listening to this because there was so much great information that you guys provided. So, uh, we're we're humbled, really, and honored, and and just thank you for investing the time in this podcast um, and into our listeners, and and that's it's just a, an absolute joy. And so, on behalf of our chapter, on behalf of Jeff and I, I want to thank you both for just again the time and and your wisdom and your experience and your vulnerability just to share and so um and you left us with at least i think i count at least five other podcast episodes so thank you for also putting that into our queue and we'll be sure to make sure we uh, cash in on those okay awesome <laughs> great great yeah Again, thank you both. And I want to thank all our listeners for, for joining us today. We hope that you got a lot out of this conversation. And please continue to check us out. You can check us out on, on all your podcast platforms, iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, whatever you use. Just check us out at Renar Voice. Jeff, thank you very much for being here. Thank you again, Dr. Ford and Dr. Crook. And I hope everybody has a blessed day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.